You're listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. This episode features audio from a previously aired live video webcast. To Sagas and Sass Season 4, brought to you by Geek Saga Entertainment. I'm Tara, along with fellow host Jonathan, and practically permanent guest host Seth. This episode will cover Conquer, Part 3 of Golden Sun, the second installment in Pierce Brown's Red Rising Saga. Please note that if you are watching this as a webcast, there is a chance you will hear some minor spoilers for future books in the Red Rising series during our live webcast. However, if you are listening to this as a podcast, any spoilery bits have been edited out. If you're watching live, join us in the chat or after the fact, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Sagas and Sass, or email us at sagasandsass at gmail.com to continue the conversation. Additionally, please note that the views expressed in this show are those of the hosts as individuals and do not necessarily represent the show as a whole. And don't forget that we now have a Patreon with 10 tiers ranging from $1 a month to $40 a month. It offers tons of ways to support us and receive some great perks in return. You can check it out at patreon.com slash geeksaga underscore entertainment. And now let's get into chapters 25 through 29 from part three of Golden Sun. Darrow and friends might have escaped from Luna and captured a VIS, very important ship that is, but it turns out that it only takes a short amount of time for a good bit of Darrow's work to be undone. A month, in fact, and the Arch-Governor is already whining about how they are undone. Why, you ask? Well, because Nero is surrounded by foolish sycophants, of course, and they squeeze out anyone they think might quote-unquote steal even the tiniest bit of their power. But hey, don't worry. Darrow and Mustang have a plan. And even though the Telemonuses don't seem to have inside knowledge of it, it's a good thing they're around, because Cavix and Daxo's input certainly lends a hand to what Darrow and Mustang are trying to accomplish, that being to bring the families of the Rim into their fold, because while commerce binds them to Luna, they hate the Sovereign due to her Ashlord's, you know, destruction of Rhea via Nuke. However, because of that destruction, those same families will not easily join the Arch-Governor's alliance. But that's okay, because Darrow wants to steal not just the Moonbreaker flagship they've been building on Ganymede, but all of their ships. And here's where Mustang plays her part. That being to question Darrow's sanity. All nasty comments by her father and Pliny aside, her questions and cautions do their job. Rather than make Augustus question Darrow's plan, they elicit a conversation that leads to the foregone conclusion. They win or they die. Oh, hey, Game of Thrones reference! So Pliny is outmaneuvered, Augustus decides to lead the raid on the shipyards of Ganymede, Mustang is ordered to take who and what she needs to basically kidnap the students from the Galaxy's Institutes, and everyone but Darrow is dismissed to go about their business, because Augustus has a special task for him. But first, Darrow has to reassure the boss man that he's not a Democrat, with a K, or a reformer. But when it comes down to whether or not Augustus can trust him, for once, Darrow plays a decent long game. Because he knows what Augustus needs him to do. Win Lorne Arcos to their side. When Darrow is finally able to leave Augustus, the Telemannuses are waiting in the hall to remind him that because of his friendship with Pax, Owl, they are, and always will be, his friends as well. And sure, it helps that just as Darrow is about to call in his first favor, Kavix's pet fox, Sophocles, miraculously finds jelly beans in Darrow's pocket. But really, they would have agreed to help Darrow anyway, though it seems we aren't going to learn how just yet. 
most things are coming up Darrow again, with the exception of one. His friendship with Roke is severely damaged and not about to be fixed anytime soon, as they're already setting a course for Europa, which means we basically just see Darrow jump from one super awk convo with Roke to the next super awk convo with Lorne. Seriously, all Lorne wants to do is chill out on Europa with his fam, and while he clearly has some love for Darrow, he kind of sort of really hates Augustus, and even tells Darrow all about his boss's history, which sure involves Augustus's whole family being murdered when he was just a kid, but also involves Augustus doing a not-so-subtle revenge murder of his first wife on their wedding night. On top of that, Lorne simply doesn't want to fight another dang war. But, unfortunately for him, the Sovereign knew Darrow would go to Lorne for help and sent Aja and a Praetorian Death Squad to nip that bud. But by now we know Darrow and his plots and his plans within plots and plans, and of course this is another one of those situations. But how did the Sovereign know what Darrow's next step would be? Well, because Darrow made sure Pliny knew as much, and at this point everybody kind of knows that Pliny is a backstabbing little shit. So as Darrow promised Augustus, he isn't giving Lorne the option of refusal. The Howlers, including a good number of new recruits, were waiting in the ocean to take care of things. Darrow dropped landmine spikes throughout the garden as he and Lorne were talking, and while Aja is basically allowed to escape, the rest of the Praetorians are taken care of. Uh, with the exception of Tactus, because, oh yeah, he was given quite the promotion for his little stunt with Lysander, and it doesn't take Darrow and Lorne very long to figure out that he has been ordered to deal with, aka kill, Lorne's grandchildren. Unfortunately for the Sovereign, Tactus might have been the only person left for this job, but it, he truly is the wrong person for it. As much as he wants to please his let's be real, totally awful family, we learned not that long ago that while he might be an asshole, he's absolutely not a baby killer. So while he has found the children, he hasn't actually done the deed. By the time Darrow and Lorne arrive, and Darrow is heartbroken, seeing Tactus's beautiful face marred by his bombs, and knowing how much his friend is hurting, how Tactus has been abused and manipulated, he offers him an out. I know there's good in you. You're not a monster. Come back to me, Darrow says, promising Tactus that he can be one of his lieutenants again. What happens next is nothing short of heartbreaking. Darrow reminds him that everyone makes mistakes, and Tactus says, I want to come home. Darrow tells him to come home, and they embrace. Tactus sobbing and apologizing, the children are escorted from the bunker, and eventually Lorne, Tactus, and Darrow are alone. At which point, Lorne simply looks the two much younger men and says, now that the children are gone, consequences. He stabs Tactus, severing an artery to kill him, and then leaves without a word, leaving Darrow to hold his friend as he dies. First, Darrow and Mustang playing the room at Augustus's little meeting of the minds is just pure Darrow and Mustang. They're so good at this. They've always been so good at this. And every time it happens, ugh, as much as I'm yeah about Darrow and love Mustang and think she can do better, I love them together a little more. Okay, let's go back to that. Bear with who? Yeah, I, actually, I was just thinking about that. I don't think that at this point in the books, we've seen a Like, we would have to introduce a character. <laughs> to be better. <laughs> to be better. In her mind, sure. very limited. I've got it in pretty much anyone's mind. It is a pretty low group of individuals that would be marriageable material here. Yeah. I mean, at least I'm, in her circles. Uh, true. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, we'd have to introduce a new character. Guy, exactly. But yeah. I like when Pliny is like, the Galileans doubt the validity of our cause. And Darrow just is like, uh, we don't have a cause. This is about power. It's always about power. We fight because we attached ourselves to a star, the arch governor. Ah, but the star is fading. Oof. The TLDR of this meeting is that 
they kind of tricked Pliny as they announced their plan to steal the ships from the docks at Ganymede and, you know, <laughs> fuck you, Pliny. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And really fuck that guy. But this actually ties into what I was saying the last time I was here is that the only reason you need iron golds is because there are other iron golds, right? They're not fighting for a cause. They're fighting for power because this faction is now challenging another faction. That's it. We get another story about that in this section, which, again, we'll get into in a little bit. But it's one of those things where in the first book, they don't make it seem as if the fight between these families and not just the Bolognas and the Augustuses is really more than Carnus killed the older Augustus son, Claudius. He's he's unimportant at this point. But (laughs) we think that it's all about them. And then we learn at the beginning of this book, in part two, when Darrow challenges Cassius, they have their duel, that after that happens, all these other houses are fighting amongst themselves, even though they weren't directly involved in that duel situation or in the Bologna versus Augustus house war. They're all fighting each other over other little slights between their families. And this is just another, like you said, I mean, yes, we only have iron golds because there are other iron golds or we only need iron golds because there are other iron golds, but it's the tentacles of this like disease. I can't say they're spreading, but our knowledge of it is that it's not just just these two families it's like the upside down in stranger things where it's Mm. like eating away (laughs) the the rot look again we've talked about i'm surprised that the society has lasted for as long as it did it's completely unworkable it is completely immoral and any argument you could make well it was necessary in order to blah 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 my counter argument is pinks i win sit down (laughs) shut up Okay, let's take a step back amongst the why it lasted as long as it has. How is this society in this book that much different from Roman society, which was able to last hundreds and hundreds of years, despite also treating their population at about the same level as this? I don't necessarily know that I'd agree entirely with that. I think it's supposed to be a smaller picture of a lot of societies as a whole over history. I don't know if I would even agree with it being the Romans, but I'm thinking like the Russians, the czars and the serfs. And then you've got colonialism and slavery. It's a, I want to say smaller, but maybe in a way it's a bigger picture because it's kind of all of the negatives of all these other societies combined in that there's this one people that is above all and they have subjugated everyone below them so much via literal like genetic manipulation and breeding and lack of technology for the low colors that they have created what in the gold mind is perfection at least to a good portion of them the closest thing to the colors that i think we have in what i would call semi-modern society unfortunately is the Indian caste system, where you definitely have a hierarchical caste with the Brahmins on top and the untouchables down at the bottom and a bunch of people going from top to bottom in the middle. If we're going semi-modern, I might make an argument for pre-revolutionary Russia. I will admit I am not terrifically familiar with Indian history uh, much at all, except for some stuff I learned about very ancient Indian history. But I don't believe they have the, at least they certainly don't now, I think, the sort of, not only am I above them, but I am allowed to do whatever I want with them that we see here that did exist in pre-revolutionary Russia. I really think it's not really an argument of one being a closer parallel than the other, because I think this is meant to be 
a conglomeration. You could make the argument that it also reflects pre-communism Chinese society and history. And Pierce Brown, from what I have read about him and articles, listened to interviews, etc., he absolutely has done a fuck ton of research. So this society might be based on Greco-Roman ideals, but I think it has taken bits and pieces from all of our history. And I honestly, I think that's kind of the saddest part about it is that is that there is like conversation between like, which awful society is it closest to? Yeah, but getting back to the point of the society wouldn't have lasted this many years. I don't think there's any evidence to that. We've had plenty of horrific societies lasting hundreds and hundreds of years. Here's why. <laughs> It's not just because it's horrific, but to bring up the Romans again, they didn't have as many the existential threat as coming from inside the house problems in as relatively brief a term as these people seem to. You had Marius and Sulla, which was the first big one. Then you had Caesar, and then from that you had Augustus and Octavian. So th there was a fairly long period where Rome society was unstable as in terms of who was in charge. But all the Iron Golds do is look at what the other ones have and are jealous that they are not the very, very pinnacle of power. And all they do is fight each other. So the people who are supposed to be in charge are just fighting each other all the time. But isn't that essentially what ancient Rome was? I mean, it, you had no. a series of people fighting each other The Republic for worked for a long period of time. They were fighting other people. They were fighting other polities. But they weren't fighting in themselves as much as these people seem to. Well, and I don't know that any society really did. I mean, even I feel like this is a long, long, long <laughs> discussion that we could have. I think the TLDR really is that, like I said, this is a conglomeration of all of the badness of societies in our history. And it seems different to us because they have all this technology. And instead of it being just monarchy and maybe like a slightly lower class and then a slightly lower class, like a merchant class and then like serfs, slaves, whatever, we've got everybody is relegated to their own case, to their own color, literally. They don't all look the same, but they all have the same eyes or the same shade of hair, etc. It's a genetically manipulated shithole. There's, there's just no reason for it. My God, there's so little reason. Well, so they can tell everybody like apart. It's like automatic. So a pink can dress up fancy and go parading about town, but... I know. I much more appreciate Ian Banks's The Culture series, which is basically luxury space communism. So that's... Excellent series, by the way. Well, so anyway, lol, <laughs> fuck you plenty. After they have their little meeting when Augustus confronts Darrow, and first he asks Darrow, are you a Democrat? Darrow denies. And then Augusta shows him a series of video clips of the crew of the Vanguard, now the PAX, of course, listening to Darrow's speech about rising against their gold commanders. And Augustus chastises Darrow for it because they'll be screwed if the other governors think they're, you know, reformers or Democrats. Darrow's just, oh, no, I mean, you know, was what I did wrong? And Augustus is like, listen, I get you think that you did what you had to do, but you got to be real fucking careful here, dumbass. But in the end, I guess this is forced to ask Darrow if he can trust him. I love how Darrow's like, in what way? Because Augustus, he thinks most people are going to say yes without thinking. But Darrow, he's like an onion. He's Shrek of the many layers. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> Darrow says, like, most men are liars. I'm telling you the truth. You're asking me if you can trust me. I'm asking you how. How are you asking? They kind of talk about the jackal 
because the jackal has his little businesses and stuff. And Augustus calls this slow power and says slow power can grind away any stagnant enemy. But fast power, one that can travel where you go, do what you wish it to, as effectively as a hammer hitting a nail, that is the power that lops off heads and steals crowns. Can I trust you with it? And Dara's just like, you don't really have a choice because I'm the only one who can go to Lorne and you need Lorne. Everything about that conversation was a really interesting back and forth. The fact that Darrow already knew what Augustus was going to ask. He played a good long game here. He really did. For once. Yeah. For once, he didn't like reveal his whole hand. Well, and obviously there's reasons for this, of course, but at no point does he ever extend the, the Darrow benefit of the doubt to augustus which is like but maybe if you just turned from your path of e there's none of that and of course he didn't kill why. his wife yeah exactly i actually would posit that augustus is the one person in this series that darrow actually knows and knows how to manipulate yeah augustus has a bunch of very obvious levers and he's not a dumb person and I don't think Darrow, even like before he went to the Academy or anything, I don't think Darrow ever spent enough time with him to learn him inside and out. But I think it's just because Darrow is so focused on this is my main enemy for the longest time that he just... Yeah, and I mean, it's also, look, I think we talked about this before. Between the two of them, Mustang is the strategic thinker, Darrow is the tactical thinker. Augustus is neither. And that puts him on a really weak footing going into an actual shooting war. He has power and he knows how to use it and he knows how to plot an assassination. Okay, which again, we're going to learn about soon. But since that, he's been essentially playing defensively against the Sovereign. That's all he's been doing. He hasn't made a move to counter her. He hasn't tried to attack her in any forum. He is just trying to shore up his own power as she tries to eat away at his base, essentially. So because of that, he's sort of been forced into a position where he has fairly limited options. And one of Darrow's big successes is that he's made himself as important to Augustus as he has, because then Darrow is the most obvious and likely best, for a lot of reasons, one of those options. Yeah, I think that's true. But I also think that Augustus actually knows in some ways his weaknesses. And I, I think the tactician and or strategists that he had working for him for better or for worse, were Pliny and Leto. I think were who he envisioned provided that skill set to his house. I think that might be correct, but can you imagine yourself trusting Pliny or Pliny or however we're pronouncing it if you didn't absolutely have to? You've maneuvered yourself to a point or you've been maneuvered to a point where, yeah, you've got to rely on Pliny because there isn't anyone else? I viewed it a little differently. I viewed it as Augustus was so self-confident in his own power base and that he brought Pliny to this point that, of course, Pliny is loyal. That's how I, I interpreted it. To me, it's Pliny, and I'm always going to pronounce it Pliny. I think Pliny <laughs> just knows Augustus. Like, Darrow knows him, honestly. He knows how to play Augustus's strings. And the problem is that Darrow and Pliny are at odds because Pliny has groomed Leto to be Augustus's second in command slash eventual heir, probably. But then comes Darrow, coming like a wrecking ball. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Augustus is self-confidence. I'd probably call it another thing. I'd probably call it hubris. Overweening <laughs> pride. 
He has a lot of that. Look, you cannot flip a page in this series without somebody or another having hubris. They're all full of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's part of what makes them golds, right? I mean, that's the whole point. They're better than everyone else and yeah from birth they're trained to have hubris i mean being better than everybody else because you've been genetically manipulated and given all of the education and everything to be better okay than how else. is that different than donald trump's children okay i don't want to get into politics here but they're full of hubris and not necessarily smarts but sitting here it's unrealistic in a fantasy world but you see Perfect examples of it in our real world. I think any monarchy is an example of that, honestly. You look at the British monarchy shit, like they all get to go to Eton and either Oxford or Cambridge, and they might not really even be that intelligent, but they just get to go there. And so they get that A plus 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 education because of their breeding. Now, again, though, in terms of genetics, whoa, I mean, has anybody seen Prince William lately? He aged bad. Well, it could be worse. It could have been a Habsburg. Ah, uh, shots fired, Habsburgs. <laughs> yeah, it's just pretty much in most sci-fi or especially fantasy stories, someone's going to have the hubris. And usually it's the bad guy because they're usually the ones who start out on top and have been kind of on top for a while. So there's a reason for them to have the hubris. But in this series, everybody, and I think to talk about this society being based on Greek or Roman or whatever, some weird mishmash of whatever. First of all, there's not a philosopher king among them. Secondly, the ancient Greeks would take one look at these people and pissed themselves over the amount of hubris that they displayed because the entire point of greek mythology is that a you should have hubris and b uh zeus likes to get down real quick (laughs) want to touch on dare trying to apologize to roke for drugging him claiming you know i wanted to protect you because i knew i'd need you it's like okay so you didn't drug anybody but roke uh what does that say and i really liked roke's response which was what about what i need you don't have the right to make choices for me because you're afraid it might interrupt your plans friends don't do that and listen the poet sometimes gets it right honestly sometimes now that said we do finally get to meet in person or on the page as it were the infamous lorn do you guys say ow or oh i say ow I said O for the longest time, but then I've been listening to Hail Reaper, which is a really Mm -hmm. good, very extremely well-produced podcast about the series, and they say Ow. And so now it's like, because I've been listening to that, I'm like in this, yeah, it's hard. So it's whatever, Lorne O. Arcos. I'm going to go Lorne O. Arcos and try to kick the Ow sound out of my head because I personally would not pronounce it that way. But we finally meet Lauren and we learn all this stuff about him. He wasn't raised in a palace because his father thought technology and culture were evil and denied pleasures like those and others for himself, but also for his sons. And now Lauren lives on Europa, which is this stormy ocean world with his entire family, save Lysander, who BT dubs as his grandson. Darrow thinks of him as a man who is a meld of past and present, and he really, really respects him above all other golds of his generation is the way Darrow thinks of it. But honestly, I feel like Darrow respects him above all other golds in general. Yeah. What golds of another generation would he respect? Yeah, I mean, his own, I guess. He definitely has a huge amount of respect for Mustang. As we all should. And maybe yes. Severo. I would call that respect on a sort of a friendship level. Yeah. Severo's your crazy friend you kind of have to watch out for all the time. 
but yeah. not in the same realm. He's going to listen to Severo when it comes to planning an attack or how to get back at somebody. He is not going to listen to Severo in terms of maybe making policy. And yeah. I think he might listen to Lorne. I mean, well, Lorne has this great reputation that he's cultivated that he's simply above all of this power politicking or politicking at all. He doesn't do it. He lives on Europa. He practices the blade. He has his family. That's what he does. Well, and Darrow also says that if all golds were like Lorne, Reds would still toil beneath the earth, but he would have them know their purpose. And that doesn't make him good, but it makes him true. You'd still have to do your job that you were born and bred for or whatever, but you wouldn't be lied to. A lot of the other indignities that go along with the class system would not exist if all golds were like Lorne, but they are not. Lorne's revelations about Nero o Augustus. If I can offer, we all know, of course, the Reds are the Irish ones. So they would be the ones saying, oh. I think for me, it depends on the way the name sounds. And honestly, that goes back to my roots, which is half my family is from upstate New York and half of them is from New England, mostly Massachusetts. So I have some aunts that I call aunt and I have some aunts that I call aunt. I mean, that's fair. The aunts live on a farm? (laughs) Yes, they do. It's a very nice farm. We should probably be saying, let's see, Aram, so Ah, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I think it's Ah, not O. But yeah. but that story, Darrow knew that Lorne hated Augustus, but until Lorne told him that story, I don't think he knew quite why. I think this history, at first it like humanizes Augustus quite a bit, and then it takes some of that humanity away and makes you think, oh, so that's why the jackal is who and what he is, because it's really sad that at what was it like seven or eight years old his family was in this dispute with the Bolognas of course and someone tried to poison the other it must have been Nero's father tried to poison the Bolognas and they failed and the Bolognas put the entire house except for Nero to death and he only let Nero live because, oh, this is such an old family and we can't kill out their line entirely. So Nero at seven or eight years old is the only person left in his family. And he grows up and he's smart and he's a leader. And I'm guessing he goes to the Institute and wins. And then he acts like he falls in love with the favored daughter. I think she was the youngest daughter of the Bologna family at that time. And they get married And he kills her and beheads her on their wedding night and stuffs grapes in her mouth, specifically because at the time when his whole family had been killed by the Bolognas, the head of the Bologna house gave Nero grapes because he was like thirsty or something. Kind of a combination red-purple wedding, really. Yeah, grapes can be, I mean, they're called red grapes, but they're really purple, let's be real. I mean, I realize I, I said earlier that he's not a strategic or tactical thinker, and then he does this. Mm-hmm. The problem is he's never done anything that sneakily underhanded or well-plotted again ever. That we know of. He must have done something reasonably well to rise to the level of power he had, even if it was nothing more than being in the right place at the right time. He had an alliance with the sovereign. He did the revenge murder 
of his brand new wife of his own accord, I'm guessing. But when the Bolognas tried to fight back, when they tried to get justice, they marched into the Citadel and found Nero on the throne because he had made a deal with the Sovereign. And he was, from then on, in charge of Mars. The exact wording isn't there, but the deal absolutely was. Nero says, hey, I'm going to do this. Help me do this. And I will help you do what you want to do. That He must have known somehow that she wanted to overthrow her father because he is like a spearhead in her revolt against her father half a decade later or something like that. Which means that he had to have some tactical and strategic thinking at that point. Huh? At that so- point, but he's, he's lost it. He certainly does not display it in any of the books that he's in in the current yeah. setting of the... He's cushy in his cushy throne with his cushy power, man. Yeah, I guess. I also just like, I mean, again, not that I can put this past humanity, but I'm I'm also just like, great, you accomplish your goal of getting revenge on the Bolognas and also pissing all of the rest of them off to the point that the blood feud between your families is sparked up again. Well yeah. done. It was never going to go away, honestly. Before we move on into the action of this section, I just wanted to read this one quote by Lorne because I really, really love it. Darrow claims that he thinks Lorne left the society because it is sick and not worth sacrificing anymore. But Lorne tells him, I left the society not because it is sick, but because it is dead. There you go, Seth. The society was created to instill order. Men were made to sacrifice so that humanity endured. They were given colors, lives limited and ordered so that we could destroy the timeless cycle of our race. Prosperity to greed to war. Gold was meant to shepherd the other colors, not devour them. Now we are trapped in that cycle, the very thing we endeavored to avoid. So the society, the beautiful sum of all human enterprise... It's been dead and rotting for hundreds of years, and those who fight over it are but vultures and maggots. Lauren's got a good 80%. He's almost there. Yeah. I mean, you know, what can you expect? Yeah. (laughs) So, turns out Aja and some Praetorians got to Europa before Darrow, though, and Lauren actually just wants to try to help Darrow escape. But, again, plots within plans within plots. Of course, Darrow has something else in mind, and that's basically just forcing Lorne to join the war. When they were walking through the garden, he was scattering these little black spikes. And somehow Lorne, who is apparently the best of the best of everything, didn't notice. It's kind of, okay, whatever. Well, I I think once you take the sword out of his hands, he might be not as familiar with the, the more modern types of weaponry that are available. I don't know if it's that. I think it's more that he is only on guard right now because Aja and the Praetorians are there, he I think he doesn't really believe that he has anything to worry about from Darrow. Because, I mean, he, he straight up says he kind of wishes Darrow was one of his sons, wishes he'd found him earlier and been able to temper his rage. He has a love for Darrow that honestly... It's his undoing in this scene. Yeah, well, it's because it's like the sovereign knew you'd be here. Well, I knew the sovereign knew I was going to be here. <laughs> well, now that we're fighting back, it looks like you said it was okay. <sighs> uh, last but not least, ugh, Tactus. Oh, buddy. Yeah, see, this is the one place where I kind of disagree with Lauren because, and maybe we just didn't want to give Darrow the win here, but he keeps on employing this line of thinking no matter what. He does his, I see the best in you, you can change, and somebody actually looks like they're going to live up to it, and Lauren is like, nah, uh-uh, no, we're not letting this slide. <laughs> You're dead. 
This is kind of like a pivotal moment, in my opinion, of Lorne. I still like him. As Darrow has said, in terms of like his generation, he is one of the better ones. But that's like saying my ultra conservative family member who is a Trump supporter and anti all of these things and doesn't believe in systemic racism and stuff like that is still a good person because they give to charities and they are great to their family members. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, But I don't think Tactus is going to kill those kids. Honestly, no, I don't think he or or at least he was very willing to let himself be talked down by Darrow. I don't think he would have killed them. I really don't. He had been standing there for a while. At least that's how I read it. He had been standing there for a while. And going back to part two, when they're escaping from the party, he literally cuts down the people who were stomping on the children's heads and is like spitting at them, calling them baby killers, baby killers. And Victor has to pull him away. Yeah. Whatever is in Tactus. And listen, I know Tactus isn't a good person. What I do think he is, is a great character. And I hate that he doesn't get more page time or get more of a chance to reveal what he could be. Yeah. Because I don't think he would have killed those children, but also, poor Tactus. He has been an ass, but he is clearly a mess in this situation, both in the injured way and in the mindset way. And he sobs that all he wants to do is come home. Home being with Darrow, probably the Howlers, and in a way, House Augustus. But it's with Darrow and it's with their friends. The first time I read this book, I didn't really perceive it this way. I still didn't like that Lauren killed Tactus, but on every subsequent reread, it has hit me a little harder to the point where I finally was like crying when I read it this time, actually tearing up. Darrow wants to forgive him, wants to welcome him back into the fold. He is thinking if Tactus can change, golds can change. They must be broken, which in this case, he believes Tactus is broken. And I agree. I think he is, but they then must be given a chance. And I'm sorry, but like, Lauren is pissed and has other yeah. ideas and he kills Tactus and Dara has to hold on to him as he dies and like I'm not crying you're crying but P.S. while this is obviously meant to be consequences for Tactus when Lauren says now that the children are gone consequences the undertone here is that it's consequences for Darrow as well for disturbing Lauren's peace and being the harbinger of danger to his family oh that's interesting yeah I mean I can definitely buy that you know, especially, and it, it, this is kind of a weird thing to draw because we know Lorne is above certain things, but maybe not above others, that he's just told this story about killing people to send a message to Darrow. I don't think he necessarily doesn't believe that Tactus could change. I think he just is like, A, for sure, you threaten my family, consequences, but also... He is pissed at Darrow. He has been pissed at Darrow this entire chapter, even at the beginning when he assumed that all he was going to be able to do was help Darrow escape before Darrow exploded his garden and put his family even more at risk, honestly. This is a, he saw them having this bro moment, and I mean that in the best possible way, and he was like, mm, nah. 
fuck you tagged us for being the person who was, as far as he knows, going to kill not just his grandchildren, but like the children of the low colors in the house because they were all hidden in the same place, which I'll give Lauren props for that, for making sure all of the children were safe somewhere or trying to make sure all the children were safe somewhere, not just his own. And that's not something I noticed the first time I read or maybe even the second time I read, but now that I'm like on my fifth read of this book, I see it in the fact that he just says, now that the children are gone, consequences, he does the deed and then he just walks out without a word. And I lost a lot of respect for Lauren there because people need to be allowed to change. They do. That is a hardcore opinion that I have. If they are willing to, willing to do the work, they need to be allowed to change. You at least, I think, need to give people a second chance. Beyond that, I'm not sure. But in the vacuum of, yes, second chances are fine depending on what it is you've done, right? I mean, yes, Tactus didn't kill the kids, but he probably killed others of Lauren's friends, family, employees as he came in. Do you forgive him for that? Forgiveness is not, that's not ours to give. It's It was Darrow's. And Darrow well, so strongly believes that gold has to change. Lauren's already given up on gold. Yeah, exactly. And I think in a way that means he's given up on Darrow too. What he says to Darrow before this, when he says like, I wish I had been able to raise you and I would not have raised you to be great. I would have raised you to be decent. You could have grown old with the woman you love. And I respect Lorne. I don't like him. Not after this, honestly. And listen, Tactus is an ass. I get that. He has done some shit. But I also think that he is, and we said this, I I believe, in the last episode, we were talking about part two, that he is a product of his own abuse and manipulation. Not just the current situation, the sovereign, but his family. His family is fucking horrible. Yeah. They say that over and over again. They're continuing to work on him. So with the end of Tactus's life, we move on to chapters 30 through 35. After his foray to Europa, Darrow rejoined some of the fleet with Lorne and company in tow. With the help of Ragnar, the Telemannuses claimed all ten of the Bologna ships that had been sent to deal with the Europa situation. And while Darrow does well in his offer to compensate them for their losses, he oversteps when he dares ask if Ragnar could lead absent a gold. He dials it back immediately. But as soon as the Telemannuses have left the room, Orion, the blue he straight up put in charge of the packs, chides him for his error. Error notes that she is observant, and she says she had to be, because it's the only way to beat the monsters. It's not the only way, he tells her. You can always become a monster, too. But Orion insists there are a billion paths to choose, and then Darrow is safe from having to strand that because Mustang is arriving on the shuttle. Why on a shuttle? Well, it turns out Augustus of Foray to Ganymede did not go as well as Darrow's to Europa. He is captured, and Mustang only escaped with the help of her brother because good old Pliny started a whole-ass coup, and they've now lost control of the better part of their fleet. Not only that, but Pliny approached Mustang immediately after her father's raid failed, saying her house had fallen to ruin, but he would divorce his wife and marry her because he had always had his eye on her. So laugh out loud, out loud, out loud, Mustang took one of his eyes, which he unceremoniously plops onto the ground. Discussion and plans follow, but before they all disperse, Darrow sees several loitering around the discarded eyeball because uh, he wants it. Mustang squints at him, but allows that it's all his and several grins, saying he hopes to collect the set. Seriously, nothing like some good goblin several humor to break up what is clearly a rough situation. 
After a brief funeral for Tactus, during which Daryl learns that Tactus took back his sale of the Stradivarian violin Daryl had gifted him and was practicing in secret, hoping to surprise Daryl with a sonata, Mustang reminds Daryl that he needs to fix things with Roke, who is more upset than ever both about losing Tactus and about Daryl letting Aja escape. Daryl knows he has to fix things, but he has a hundred other things to fix as well. And it doesn't help that his friends and counselors can't help but argue amongst themselves, and Victra is the biggest victim of their ire. No one trusts her because her mother was one of the first to betray Augustus, an ally with the Sovereign. No one except Daryl and Roke that is, and they fight for her inclusion in their plans, which include taking back their fleet and then taking back Mars. But the real question is, how will they do these things? That's another answer we don't get right away because next thing we know, Darrow is trying to sleep, but someone is ringing his doorbell. And that someone is, not surprisingly, Mustang. Ragnar tried to chase her away, but Darrow lets her in to his room anyway. They converse, but it's in circles, and in the end, when Mustang tells him that he should ask her to stay, he can only think that if she gives him her heart, he will break it. But really, it's more about his fear of her rejecting him when she discovers what he really is. And so he doesn't respond fast enough, and then she is gone. As it turns out, their plan is to sneak into Pliny's ship via a supply vessel called a camel ship. And during this trip, Darrow has a VIC, very important chat, with Ragnar. He tries to tell Ragnar that they are brothers, but Ragnar is confused because he thinks of Darrow as his master. So Darrow cuts his finger and smears the blood on Ragnar's sigils, and then his own, trying to prove that yes, they are the same. But Ragnar still bucks this idea because he doesn't understand how they could be the same when Darrow is a gold and comes from the sun. And this is when Darrow bears it all, admitting that he was born six inches from the earth, that he was deceived as Ragnar has been deceived, and that the sons came for him, gave him a second chance. He wants Ragnar to choose, to choose to be Darrow's friend, to rise with him. Darrow leaves Ragnar without waiting for him to answer, but when their camel ship arrives in the Bay of Pliny's flagship, Ragnar is behind him, along with Lorne, Mustang, Kavix, Roke, Severo, Daxo, and Victra. The low colors don't stand in their way, and they immediately release the prisoners Pliny has taken. Well, not before Severo makes each of them thank the Reaper for saving them, including the Jackal, who also apparently has to play along with Severo's what's-in-my-pocket riddle, though Darrow helps the Jackal along by pointing to his eye, because of course Severo still has Pliny's eyeball in his pocket. Lols. The crew eventually positions themselves just above Pliny's conference room. They've taken over the ship's speakers and Severo sings, If your heart beats like a drum and your leg's a little wet, it's because the Reapers come to collect a little debt. Darrow mounts the leechcraft drill that they brought along and burns through the floor, slamming into the middle of the conference table with Lauren, Mustang, and Severo following close behind. Obviously, the golds who, let's be real, kind of stupidly align themselves with Pliny freak the fuck out. And it doesn't help that when Pliny screams for them to seize the traitors, Lauren simply says, if anyone comes within two meters of Darrow, I kill everyone in this room. Honestly, <laughs> Fuck you, Pliny. No one is rare to call Lorne out Arcus's bluff. Seriously, one dude almost tries it. His neighbor stabs him in the back. Unfortunately for Pliny, he assumed Aja would kill Darrow on Europa and, like, never fucking followed through to make sure that happened. As Darrow says, the Jackal failed to kill him. Antonia failed to kill him. Proctor's Apollo and Jupiter failed to kill him. Cassius failed. Carnus failed. Cagney failed. Aja and her Praetorians failed. Darrow doesn't kill Pliny then, though. He merely gives him a good slap across the face and leaves it to his quote-unquote friends 
who, of course, immediately murder him. The peerless gold go with the wind, chasing power, and Darrow knows he cannot trust them, but he also knows he is once again their leader, so he announces that he is bound for Mars and calls for an iron reign. Ugh, Darrow, maybe don't immediately start spouting to everyone that Ragnar can be a leader of his own accord. <laughs> too much, too quick, you know? Yeah. Ryan is great there, though. But yeah, ugh, Darrow. The fact that the Telemonises, of all people who have not really questioned anything he's done at this point, are both like, huh? When he asks that if Ragnar could lead Absent of Gold, is like, okay, dude, if these people are like raising their eyebrows at you, dial it back, dial it back. Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm getting the, the timing of this wrong. question is sort of stupid for Darrow to ask for a number of reasons. One, I suspect he already knows the answer. Didn't he already have this discussion with Augustus regarding Orion and, you know, that, of course, people can do things that are outside their color? I think he was expecting the Telemannuses to be a little more open-minded about it. I think he was kind of high on the winds and also knows that the Telemannuses are really the people who raised Mustang to be the way she is, way more so than her father did. And I think he expects them, maybe not expects, but hopes too much that they are more open, especially after they are telling him like, oh, look, at Ragnar did a great job. All the accolades to Ragnar. They were a bit more open to it than the council was open to Sam's suggestion of democracy, but... Oh, 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 why would we ever let the commons pick for themselves? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I mean, they can't do any worse a job than you're doing. I did have to lull a little bit at Lorne after Darrow and Mustang immediately figure out that the shuttle she escaped on is definitely being tracked. And he's like, when did you discuss this? Mustang, confused. Just now. Severo, don't worry, you're not senile. They're just odd. It's just another one of those Darrow and Mustang moments. P.S. though, the orange, Scyther, who I'm pretty sure, let's just say, at this point for sure, is the only orange we have ever met is great. He steps forward and he offers a better solution than just ditching the shuttle. This is not something he would have felt comfortable doing with any gold other than Darrow, probably. And his idea to use it to send Pliny's hounds barking in the wrong direction is obviously great. And then just forever, LOL, LOL, about Severo and Pliny's eye. Severo's such a weirdo and I love him. Yeah, I mean, Severo, in addition to all of the obvious trauma he's had to deal with, there's some other stuff that's in there that's just, it is just something. His whole obsession with eyes. I mean, I don't know. He's just, he's just a weird little dude. We go on to Roke, who is big mad that Darrow let Aja go and probably also mad that Darrow kept the plan from him and all. And they're discussing Tactus's death. And Roke says, he went as he lived, only wish he could have lived a little longer. And Mustang asks Roke if he thinks Tactus would have changed, to which he replies, he was always our friend. It was our responsibility to help him, even if it was like hugging a flame. He eyes Darrow, and Darrow insists that he didn't want Tactus to die. He wanted him to come back with them. But Roke, like, so clearly doesn't believe him, very obviously because he let Aja go. So he's, like, he's lumping Darrow's sins one on top of the other even though Darrow already explained why he let Aja go Roke scoffs 
Naturally, she, Aja, kills our friend. She kills Quinn, but we let her walk away for the grander scheme. Everything costs something, Darrow. Perhaps you'll soon tire of making your friends pay. And Mustang tells him that isn't fair, but Roke isn't cowed, reminding them they're running out of friends, which isn't entirely wrong. And that not all of them are as tough as the Reaper. Not all of them want to be warriors. Le Sai. It's just a... Him and Roke haven't had all that much one-on-one time yeah and this is the first point where it's like oh he big bad dude yeah that's also something that really annoyed me throughout this book is that it's it's very obvious from like quinn gets killed that darrow needs to go talk to roke like they they need to have they need to have a sit down they need to have something they need to have chat they need to do whatever and he continues not to do it and he does other things and i'm like dude you had an hour in there that you could have gone and talked to the guy. And yet, he does not. But also, Roke, Tactus was your friend who betrayed you and was working for the other side and had maybe gone to kill a bunch of kids. Probably not, but maybe. The fact that Darrow did not kill him out of hand immediately when he got into that room means your argument is null and void, sir. Sit down, please. Roke sees things in a very black and white manner. You can make generalizations about everybody in this book except for Mustang because she's awesome. Now, to be fair, to be fair, when they go into the war council and everybody's all about being anti-Victra and she insists that she's loyal, Roke, he like really stands up for her. He really does. The Telemannuses, Lorne, even Severo and Mustang are for setting her aside someplace safe, aka like putting her in a cell somewhere so that she can't turn (laughs) on them. And, you know, yes, her mother apparently has sided with the Sovereign, but Roke really does stand up for her. Now, granted, it is all eyes on Darrow, and he tells them, Chance made us golds. We could have been born any other color. Chance put us in our families, but we choose our friends. Victra chose me. I chose her like I chose all of you. And if we cannot trust our friends, then what's the point in breathing? Ugh, side note, he also like sees how Victor is looking at him and thinks about how the jackal told him that Victor loved him. Yeah. And wonders, like, could I ever love her? But no, no. In another <laughs> world, Mustang would never be a warrior, would never be cruel. In any world, Victor would always be like this, always a warrior, like Eo, really, always too wild and full of fire to find peace in anything else. It's so dramatic, Darrow. Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. She is a warrior, but she also stood in a corner with you and told you that she loves the smell of stone before it rains and hates the color gold like to say that she is only a warrior it's shoehorning her into that one thing and also to say mustang would never be a warrior is shoehorning her as well because mustang is a warrior just not in the physical sense at at this current time she was in book one like everybody she was a physical warrior well i mean she was to the extent that she needed to be but it's not her first option that was never the game she played and that's why she chose darrow as her ally because she knew he could be what she could not in that sense but she could also be what he couldn't be in the political sense and i mean he's shoehorning mustang into mustang would never be a warrior she is just maybe not in the way you see warriors and also 
to shoehorn Victor into just being a warrior is wrong as well. Yeah, I talked a little bit about how I'm I'm a little ambivalent about Victra. I mean, her family are a bunch of slavers. It is what it is. Yeah! yeah! Right there. Did so they all her? accept Victra, you know, begrudgingly, obviously, yeah. on, on yeah. some of their parts. But next up, I just got to talk on this because the hot goss is that Augustus is afraid of robots. I have to believe this is an Asimov reference, right? I think it's I think it's a Herbert reference. I thought it was a Battlestar Galactica. Uh, that that too. There's um, a lot of robots taking over. I mean, shit, it's a Terminator reference for all we know. <laughs> yeah, I do like the old robots would have taken over the... I mean, I, I don't see how they would have done a worse job than... Well, they might have eliminated humanity entirely. Uh, it's a... Uh objectionable yeah i'm sure <laughs> i just find it really hilarious that mustang tells darrow that augustus her father was convinced that robots would have overthrown man and now ruled the solar system if earth's empires had never been destroyed and darrow thinks this is hilarious he's like cackling about it rightfully so and this is another interesting part though this doesn't really have much bearing on the story at this point but i still just love it because darrow then asks if augustus is also afraid of aliens and while mustang is like i don't know she does say they're out there you know and he's like wait what and she's like no 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 no. we've never found any but the drake roddenberry equation <laughs> suggests a mathematical probability that they exist and that's a star trek reference well the fact we haven't found life is the fermi paradox but right Pierce, he does a very good job of inserting these references in a way that the first time i read this i didn't really think about it and then again on subsequent rewrites i was like oh ha Roddenberry. You're reading so fast, right? The first time, because you love it so much, at least for me, that you don't think about these tiny little things, but then you read like Drake Roddenberry and you're like, oh, Star Trek. Well, <laughs> I think in one of the first of dozens, if not hundreds of messages I sent you while I was reading this series, I want to say it's something like on page 10 of book one, there's reference to a place called Osgiliath on Mars. Mm. And I was like, it's farther in than that. But yes, the Osgiliath thing was like, it's when Darrow is traveling through the city, I think to go see Mickey for the first time. And they're trying to sell VR trips to places. And they're like, oh, we'll send you to Osgiliath. And it's like, hmm, that's cute. That like that's the thing. Like Pierce does a really good job of throwing in these like little references to sci-fi and fantasy that you might pass over on a first read maybe but it's hard to ignore but it's still fucking hilarious that augustus was so afraid of robots like well, maybe I, you weren't it, wrong though i mean maybe but i think at this point i don't think he could have found enough unbiased sources to not be afraid of robots right because i'm sure the people who built the culture that they did had to justify not using ro robots for more stuff than they are using robots for currently and I imagine that would have to be something like, and yes, they would have taken over. Sure would have taken over everything. I think next, the most important thing to talk about is, oh, Darrow tells Ragnar all the things. And not only does he tell him, but he doesn't swear Ragnar to silence or demand an immediate answer. Because as Darrow says, Dancer demanded none from me. I had to make the choice. If I had not, if I'd been forced into service, then I would have given up a thousand times. Slaves do not have the bravery of free men. That is why golds lie to low reds and make them think they are brave. That is why they lie to obsidians and make them think it is an honor to serve gods. 
easier than the truth, yet it takes only one truth to bring a kingdom of lies crashing down. And Darrow knows that in the end, he needs Ragnar to join him because red alone will not be enough. And like, man, thank the gods that Ragnar does join him because otherwise that would have been bad. I don't really see a world in which Ragnar made a different choice because from the moment he meets Ragnar, there are other hints that Ragnar is angry about the life that he has been forced to live and stuff like that. It's not necessarily like a twist or a surprising thing that Ragnar joins him, but man, Darrow, this is a weird time to just be like, Hey, here's my life laid bare. We're going to get plenty on my side or not, even if I'm a red. I think Darrow does that more for himself than out of any necessity to get Ragnar to come along. I I think Darrow is very uncomfortable with the way Ragnar treats him Hmm. and is like, I got to stop this somehow. This is not this is not working for me. Well, and I think he's also kind of taken that like first sniff of cocaine (laughs) <laughs> that first shot of heroin with Severo knowing yeah. who he is and what he is and being accepted. And now he is jonesing for everybody he cares about to know. And he thankfully isn't entirely stupid about it quite yet. But like, yeah, at this point, it's kind of like you have a secret, right? Your personal secret, not somebody else's secret. You have a secret and you tell one person. And then you're like, that one person, you get that feeling of like, God, that relief. And then you need to tell somebody else. And I do think that's what it was. I don't think it was the most intelligent decision to tell anybody else. But I mean, if he was going to tell anybody else, Ragnar was a good choice, I guess. Because here's the other thing, like, even if Ragnar hadn't gone along with what he said, I guess the other thing is like, "Mm, maybe that was a weak choice for Daryl because he also knows that. Ragnar sees him as his master and would he actually do anything against him based on this knowledge? I mean, I think it'd be easy enough for that coin to flip the other way and for Ragnar or an obsidian, let's say, to go, wait a minute, I've been serving, I've been calling a red master this whole time. That will not stand. I am better than reds. And then, you know, but I mean, I agree. It's got to feel good for somebody he's actually working with on a day to day basis to know and and i mean maybe maybe he's even using ragnar as a little trial for mustang Mm, i mean it's still what is technically considered a slave talking to another slave so i don't know if i would call it that yeah it's it's not quite that but i mean but no i i agree like he's uncomfortable with the way ragnar treats him and i think that's definitely a part of it but i do think another part of it is that he needs somebody else to know And this is the person he can tell with very possibly the least amount of blowback. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I do think he absolutely wanted to tell Ragnar for other reasons. Like he trusts and respects Ragnar. He has seen how he has fought for their side and everything. But yeah, at this point, who else was he going to tell? But good for him. Uh, uh, Ragnar believed in it or whatever and is following him because... Ragnar could have like stood up and just cut him down right then. But I think I have to imagine there was like a, an expectation that Ragnar would still have that sort of connection as master to slave that he wouldn't immediately try to ruin him. But, you know, then their own friends take down Pliny, which is chef's kiss. Look, 
the minute Pliny appeared on stage, he was written to make us want him to die. Much in the same way that, I mean, although I think these people have done enough of it themselves, and this is a weird example, sorry, I've been watching a lot of the show. If you watch the first several seasons of Top Chef, certain people are definitely set up as to be the person you want to see leave. There's got to be, even among this the story of one man surrounded by mostly villains with a few friends, there's got to be somebody that we just need a good cathartic exit from. Pliny is that person. Yeah, and we get it. I love that he slaps Pliny across the face and therefore out of his chair. But doesn't hurt him beyond that because Dara thinks, I will not demean the moment with cruelty like Carnus or Titus would. My condescension is my weapon. And that hits me like personally real hard in the best way. I don't need to physically harm you. I can just be super condescending to you, an asshole. I feel you, Daryl. I feel you. And again, this is why I have such torn feelings about Daryl. I mostly don't like him because he is the worst part to me. Then he leaves the room, leaves Pliny with his friends who immediately kill him because here is Daryl's big lesson about trust. As we said in the summary, they go with the wind chasing power, the golds, but they don't realize power doesn't shift. Power is resolute. It is the mountain, not the wind. To shift so easily is to lose trust. And trust is what has kept me alive. Trust in my friends and their trust in me. And the sovereign also understands this. That's why she has her furies and keeps them close. After all, what does all the power in the world matter if your closest friends can betray you? This is also why he started fresh with Victra, why he told Ragnar the truth, why he knows he needs to make amends with Lorne and Roke, even though these people are allies only because they must be. He knows they are so stern and rigid that they will break and shatter against one another. Not because of me, he thinks, but because of what they are, which is, again, like big, oof. Yeah. Oh, Darrow. Listen, he has it so right here, regardless of what you think about him telling Ragnar what he did when he did. He has it right. I mean, all these people were sided with Augustus, and then Pliny betrayed him, and they just immediately sided with Pliny. Like, they're all a bunch of assholes. That's all most of these golds are. Not all of them, but most of them. Yeah. Yeah. But that's people in general. I think yes and no. I think there's a difference between friendships in real life right now and the way, very specifically, the way they are in this situation or in this society. Because, again, we go back to the whole there's only iron golds because there's other iron golds. Like, yes, there are always those aspects of people's personalities, alliances, whatever. But... This is an extreme of that. I, I, most people are followers. Well, and, yeah. And they follow what they the side they think will win, basically, or that will benefit them the most. So the fact you jump ship as soon as the tide turns is not surprising. You're not the, entirely wrong. Just or... mostly wrong. <laughs> the no. willingness and the ease with which these people, yeah. for whom being a warrior is a defining characteristic of their life, honor is the defining characteristic of their life, supposedly, it's not. Uh, That's what Dara's pointing out, is that the defining characteristic of their life is hunger for power. I think that there's a lack of nuances 
in this society versus what there are in today's society. But mostly I think a big part of that is because we're looking at, yes, there's like the 1% and everything here today now, but most people are below the 1%, but still feel like they have a voice. Whereas in this society, they don't. So you don't have a voice really, unless you are a peerless guard or a gold, a politico, whatever, even plenty. He's not a peerless guard, but he's a politico. He's high up there. I think that's the nuance between our current society and this society is that, yes, you're right. Most people are our followers and we'll go where the wind blows, but a lot of people still feel like they have a voice now because they do when they absolutely don't in this society. Okay, so let's just take the U.S. out of the equation, make it the world society. So yes, people still feel they have a voice in our democracy currently in the United States. I don't think anyone in China feels they have any power whatsoever. I don't think anyone in Iran thinks they have any power whatsoever. People in Iran, though, some of them are starting to try to take the power back. I understand that. Same in China right now, too. But I don't think any of them feel like they have. But those folks are not going to then go, ah, well, you know what? The government looks like it's winning. I better switch to their side. No, they don't go. The government looks like they're winning. It's which members of the government look like they're winning. And I'll switch to that side. But in this society, the case system that they have, it doesn't allow you to have a voice unless you're a gold. And even as a gold, it doesn't necessarily allow you to have a voice unless you are educated and or connected, in which case plenty was. So, so um, it's very important that you be connected. Now that's it. So Darrow might not trust these people, but he kind of has to rely on them as we dive into chapters 36 through 39. And next we know the iron rain that Darrow called for is happening, which means it's a big Darrow speech moment. He insists that while the city should be taken and the golds who will not bend should be killed, the low color should be protected. They will not collapse the mines, rape the cities of Mars, or despoil her verdant grounds. They do not want to take a corpse. They want to take her back. Whites come around to uh, basically bless the gold warriors prior to battle, after which said warriors recite the names of their chief enemies, and then Darrow takes his leave of Roke, Lorne, Mustang, and Theodora. The latter two kind of sweet, even if the former two were more on the bittersweet side of things. That said, Darrow does get a little morale boost on his way to the hangars with Severo and Ragnar when Severo points out that a bunch of people have painted sling blades on their armor. And it doesn't stop there. Even as Darrow is wondering aloud to Severo whether this might be a cool trick, whether Ares even exists at all, Severo lets loose a howl and the entire bay howls back in kind, and then the standards of the separate legions fall, even those of the Augustus Lion, and are replaced with wolves and sling blades. Act like a god, get followed like a god, Severo insists. Oh, and there's a couple of quick blasts in the past as well, because it turns out that Proctor Jupiter has been spying for Augustus and comes round to inform Darrow that last he knew all of the Bologna were in Aegea. And oh, a peculiar series of heavy shuttles landed just last night. This is followed by a quick chat with Mila, one of Darrow's first recruits at the Institute. And then they're all in spit tubes waiting to be launched into space through Mars' atmosphere to land on her ground and win her back. The playful banter between Darrow and some of his friends is cut short when Roke announces, let ball the rain. And they're off. Silence reigns 
as Darrow and his legions ripped through the space battle, seeing the Telemannus' war party launch from Victor's ship, which then plunged into the Bolina formation, something that would be a very bad idea, except surprise, Victor's mother switches sides, and soon Darrow loses sight of that engagement and has to focus on what comes next, making landfall and slipping under the gap between the city's shields and the ground. However, Darrow's landing party ends up much further from their goal than they had anticipated, and now they have to travel 300 kilometers, something that is at least a bit easier than it could be considering they all have grab boots. While their trip isn't without its troubles, they eventually meet up with Mustang's group, which of course landed much closer to their goal. And let's be real, that's probably because it's Mustang. Ha! At which point, they are hailed by Roke, and boy, does he have news for them. Or does he? Because when Darrow finally flies up into the clouds to get beyond the jammers and the storm that is raging around them, Roke ends up revealing something Darrow apparently already knew. The Sovereign is on Mars and trapped behind the shields in Aegea. Roke is clearly angry with Darrow for not letting him in on this little secret. But while Darrow does look forward to revealing that this is why they let Aja escape from Europa, because they could use his bomb's radiation signature to track her and therefore the Sovereign as well, he kind of has bigger fish to fry right now. They arrive on Olympus, yes, the Institute's Olympus, which their foes had been using as a base, and face basically zero resistance, also discovering that the students have already been evacuated. So, you know, insert, it's a trap realization here. But what kind of trap? They don't really have time to figure this out as they need to get a hold of the Sovereign. Literal physical hold. Capture her, you know. This involves ignoring the battle raging around Aegea's defensive wall and instead swimming under that wall through the opening that was cut by the Sons of Ares at Darrow's behest. Once on the inside, Mustang departs to finish her task of taking down the shield. But then Darrow is distracted. A little brown girl is there, just standing in the mud, and she has something in her hand. Severo moves to shoot her, and Darrow knocks his hand aside. Darrow looks up and sees Bologna knights and obsidians floating above them, beyond the range of the EMP globe in the little girl's hand. She presses the globe's button, and Darrow and his people begin to die. This is a terrible, like, section to end an episode on, but we got what we got. So... As we go back to preparing for the Iron Rain, Lorne reminds them they aren't fighting for a planet, but for men and women to cut off their heads and see their armies crumble. And then they list their enemies, as we mentioned, knowing that in the halls of those enemies, their own names are being recited. And Darrow tells Lorne that he's most interested in meeting Cassius, but... As we all know, that's not true. And a deep shame burns in Darrow for how he yelled at Cassius's family. And he's thinking, I beat him badly, but I didn't have to like it as much as I did. Sometimes I wonder if he were raised a red and I a gold, if he wouldn't have ended up a better man than I am now, and I a worse man than he could ever be. For some reason, I think I could have been capable of great evil. Maybe that's the guilt. Maybe that's the fear of a life where I never knew EO. I don't know. Or maybe it's the fear of knowing how easily I fall to pride. Honestly, listen, stop it with the two real takes, (laughs) Darrow. I don't know. Look, he stabbed you in the stomach and left you to die in the winter in a wilderness. But it was all for his brother, his sweet, sweet brother. Oh, we've had that discussion. And now... (laughs) 
and now he's stooping your ex. No. A little satisfaction? Maybe? No, not now. He he was stooping the ex. He was stooping the ex, but not right now. But when they had the duel, he was stooping. I mean, Cassius really did care, does care about Mustang. Yes, I think there was some satisfaction on Cassius's part that he was screwing Darrow's ex. For sure, there's always that little bit of, you're an asshole, but I got the girl you were in love with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's that. But there's also, like, I mean, and we've talked about how Darrow realizes that Mustang isn't using Cassius to get back at him, which is true. But yeah, I mean, like, look, Darrow, I don't know. I would feel a little bit of satisfaction in cutting Cassius's arm off, too, if I were in Darrow's situation. Well, point. and also feel a lot satisfaction in laying some punishment on his entire family. Carnus, fucking asshole. Cagney, fucking asshole. Cassius's mother? What the fuck is wrong with this bitch? Cassius is the nice guy in the family. Yeah, TM. Nice guy, TM. Yeah. <laughs> but like his mother is awful. Actually, his dad is kind of just sitting back like, oh god, I don't know how to control it. So not that he's not a jerk, but he's also kind of like, whoa! <laughs> what am I into here? Like, when his wife is like, yeah, cut out his heart! <sighs> Cassius's dad is like, mm, take a step back, guys! We can't be doing this right here! Ugh, those balonas, man. My exactly, it just keeps happening in my head. <laughs> Alright, well... Then we get to Severo, who, like, really wants to kill Augustus, but Darrow says, no boy, down boy, bad. <laughs> he doesn't really say that. But, like, he is very much like, no, stop, don't do it. And Severo tells Darrow, you don't need his legitimacy. Haven't you figured us out yet? Here, you get what you take, no matter the right of it. You are 20 years old. If you win Mars, Darrow, you become a living god. And so when you reveal what you really are, you transcend color. Do I register? Listen, he has good points there. But also, Darrow has it right when he thinks Severo has grown wiser since we first met. No doubt about that. But I fear he thinks too much of me. Apollo thought he was a god. Augustus thinks he is. A god is not what I should be. A god is something to serve, something to worship. I've never wanted that. Eo never wanted that. Severo will have to learn. This is about freedom. Here you go, Jonathan. Yet it seems like everyone just wants to follow. Well, it's easier. Yeah. It's it's easier. It is. Um, I mean, listen, Severo's not wrong. Augustus yeah. needs to die, but now we have the time, my dude. But and that's I, how Severo is. He's yeah. goblin. I, he's Do very aggro. I would yeah. also point out that a very high percentage of the people following darrow and fighting for darrow right now it isn't about freedom they don't know that it's about that right now it's about not, not getting, getting killed, killed by the, by the other side yeah exactly and they you know they think darrow is the one to lead them to it although not yeah i don't think it, they ever thought it was about freedom i think it was about being on the winning side of the particular power dynamics that will control society yeah, I mean, yeah, nobody nobody ever slapped some blue paint on their face, rode a horse down to the battlefield, and yelled freedom at them. Like an avatar? 
I was thinking Braveheart. I know. I know it was supposed to be Braveheart. But okay. Avatar has the blue faces too. <laughs> I mean, but to be fair, they have all the real Earth history, right? They clearly do because they've got Roddenberry and Asgiliath and... When Darrow's name-checking all of the great commanders <laughs> mm-hmm. of history, Alexander, Caesar... At one point, he even names Wigan. So it's like, I think we're supposed to also believe that some of the sci-fi and fantasy from Earth might have been real, too. Or at least they got confused as to what was what. I don't agree with that, because in Ender's Game, there were aliens, and there's no aliens. So I think that was a homage to Orson Scott Card, is what Mm. that was. It was not a, we're supposed to believe. I think you're right there. (laughs) I actually didn't think about that. It would explain why people are afraid of aliens. Like, we fought this giant race of bugs, and we... We went to different galaxies and something happened. Oh, God. Does that mean Starship Troopers is real? That was the greatest movie ever. Dude, Starship Troopers, the book, has some issues, but it is a good book. Um, The movie was something else. The movie was great. It was one of the best satires I've ever seen. Heinlein as an author has some issues. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, getting back to the subject at hand. Okay, so Golds believe that if they take a city by force, the city and everyone there is now their property and they deserve the spoils, which that's very much hearkening back to Tactus at the Institute. But Darrow believes that if he can protect the city of Asia, if he can show its people that there is a better breed of man, then maybe they can win Aegis heart and be loved by those in it as he is loved by his army. I don't think he's entirely wrong, right? Like the people of Asia actually probably don't care who the fuck rules them at this point. They just don't want to be like raped and despoiled for, you know, obvious fucking reasons. Then they let fall that iron rain and whoa, things do not go as planned. Now, first I just want to give a quick little RIP to Harpy. I know we don't get to know her very well, but she was one of the OG howlers from back at the Institute, and she dies in the Iron Rain. So, RIP Harpy. They land way too far out. 300 kilometers, man. Are you kidding me? This is like George R. R. Martin distances, honestly. There's no need for that to have been that long. I get that they have technology. I get that they have grab foods. But, like, 300 kilometers? Come on. Calculations, whatever. I don't care. I feel like saying it was 300 kilometers was hyperbole unnecessary do we know how fast they can go with those grab boots because that is like you know wild. i assume they could go like 60 70 80 miles an hour on those grab boots it takes them a good bit but also i think that 300 kilometers was a bit much yeah and then they get to olympus ragnar went up in there and just cut down all of the golds that were there there's no students i do like how darrow when he realizes that all the students are gone, he was like, how weird it must be to be in the midst of your year at the Institute and just be plucked up from fighting with like medieval weapons, basically to be plucked up from that and be like, Oh, back in society now. Sorry, we're in a war. Y'all haven't known about it. Cause you've been in the Institute for X amount of months, but yeah. Killing each other and eating your friends. Yeah, well, hopefully not that. I have to imagine that the Jackal and company are not the only students in the centuries-long existence of the Institute to have resorted to cannibalism at some point. I imagine that is one of the things they try to keep a little bit quiet about what happens. It might have been one of very few or possibly the only time where they actively killed a student who is still alive. That's possible, yeah. 
Last but not least, they get to the wall, they swim under it. And earlier, there was a very brief conversation between Severo and Darrow, where Darrow was like, did you send the message? And Severo was like, I sent the message, don't know if they got it. And it turns out that it was for the sons of Ares to drill up through the ground beneath the river and brash out the grates so they could swim under it. But that's kind of neither here nor there. They did what they were supposed to do. They get to the other side. Mustang has time to leave, go off to do her job, which is to take down the shields, which has to be like timed perfectly so that the sovereign doesn't escape and they can also do their other jobs. But the little brown girl, and I'm saying this with a capital B brown, she is a color brown girl that is standing there on the riverbed, Mm. like in the mud. And she has a picnic basket or whatever, and she reaches in and she takes something out, and it's this little globe. This is so Cassius, who knows Darrow. He knew he would not allow that little girl to be shot. That's my take on that. He knew that they had to send somebody who was innocent. Yeah, I mean, their timing on it was magnificent that they managed to get her right there just at that point. When they my, didn't know about the holes in the wall. My point was they didn't need the girl. Anyone I, could have done that, and they didn't even need to show the globe. They hit the button, and there you have the EMP yeah. pulse. It would look great on TV. It would look great on TV, but it's a stupid plot line. I, I just I It's agree. a stupid plot contrivance. Are you telling me, really, you can't put an EMP globe on a timer? Yeah, I, it was just dumb. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. There's so much showmanship in this society, particularly there is, And I think that that's some of what that was. There are times where it seems like Pierce Brown writes himself into a corner and the only way he can get out is by making the other side do something that is so incredibly smart and well-planned, even though they couldn't have predicted the timing. Uh, or even but... where they would come from. There was something they knew. That's simply what it is. So we will end this episode on one of the stupidest moments of the series. I don't know if I'd call it that, but it's contrived. I won't disagree with that. Well, as we close out this episode, we just want to give a shout out to our Heroes Tier patron, Tommy of the TKOK Podcast Network. Thank you so much for supporting us. Once again, I'm Tara, along with fellow host Jonathan and practically permanent host Seth. Don't forget, you can always hit us up at Sogs and Sass on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube, or email us at sagasandsass at gmail.com with any comments or thoughts you might have. Thank you for joining us for Sagas and Sass. We will be back on Wednesday, December 14th to cover part four of Golden Sun. Thank you for listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Sagas and Sass.